So I um, was sort of going through some Hofstetter. Well, not sort of. I was going through some Hofstetter. And, uh, you know, came across a, a dialogue, you know, just concerning, you know, because the whole section is basically based off of Alan Turning um, and, you know, the Turning test and, you know, how to determine, you know, at, at what point does a machine be considered conscious? At what point is it evolved enough to be actually a, a, a thinking thing that, that is able to respond with more than just following, you know, picking from patterns in its thing and just, you know, providing the solution that it, that has the highest probability, like, you know, like a chess program, like the original chess programs. But, you know, with, you know, you, you look in the past, how many years they, they, you know, they made that, uh, um, that, uh, was it alpha, was it alpha go or whatever? Um, and they alpha go, they, uh, beat the number one ranked grandmaster, um, and go four, four out of the five games or whatever. And then they, they built alpha zero, which didn't use any human, um, games. Cause alpha, alpha, um, go, they, they, you know, put all the best games from all the, you know, all the data and it was able to play and, and kind of get better and, and learn from it. Well, Alpha Zero they made, and it didn't use a single thing of of human data. It literally was given the rules, and it played itself, and was and the machine that beat the number one human player four to games to one. Alpha Zero beat Alpha Go a hundred to nothing, and so it's like holy shit! Like look where we are now. Like we've got we've got you know even video games that have you know self writing algorithms that the game writes itself while the game's play, being played and. And it's building on, you know, so your game might be slightly different than my game because the depending on what happened, the, you know, the algorithms build additional data. And so, you know, we're already at this part now where we're, you know, everyone in, everyone in the world, like most people have a smartphone at this point, you know, except for third world countries. And what the normal, your average human who's, you know, may even be below the poverty line uh, has more, is has more information and access to to knowledge than the world leaders did 20 years ago. And it's like, wow, you know, where, and I, and, you know, I would almost argue that we're like losing our humanity. And, but even what does that mean? It's like, it, it, it's, to we're losing humanity and, and uh, AI programs are gaining humanity. Well, anyway, without going too far into this, um, I, I could really like to have discussion with somebody on this. In fact, I'd like to do a separate thing where I can just get some people and we can discuss this. You know, there's probably been a, there's been a million discussions done, but you know, I truly believe like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna find anything new. I'm not gonna I'm probably not gonna say anything new, especially with all these amazing thinkers. Like, you know, uh, but if I can at least get certain information to certain people. You know, I feel like a lot of the a lot of the holdups we have in in intellectual progression, knowledge progression, is because people get too stuck in their wheelhouse and aren't you know the the piece of information they need to hear might be coming from a field that they wouldn't normally touch, but it's just hearing that thing in the right way is sometimes the the catalyst needed. You know, I still truly believe we put all the great minds and I mean everybody do acid one weekend and they all got in the room and talked together, we'd probably just figure out the entire universe, but. Um, well, that being said, uh, this this particular dialogue I, th I thought was really interesting. 
And um, I don't want to read the entire sort of like introduction, but you know, being you know, I'm sure if you're you're listening to this, then you at least give a damn to find out, or at least know the basic understanding of the Turing machine or whatever. But I just want to start with the in November 1883 um, at the beginning section of his review of Alan Turing, the Enigma. Uh, Hofstadter wrote, Can true intelligence be embodied in any sort of substrate, organic, electro, uh, electronic, or otherwise? Is mind more than pattern? How can we distinguish between a genuine mind and a clever facade? Is free will incompatible with the materialist, me- mechan- mechanistic view of living beings? Is there a contradiction in the notion of rule-bound creativity? Do our emotions and our intellects belong to separate compartments of ourselves? Could machines have emotions? Could machines be enchanted by ideas, by people, by other machines? Could machines be attracted to each other, fall in love? Would they be the social – what would be the social norms for machines in love? Would there be proper and improper types of machine love affairs? Could a machine be frustrated and suffer? Could a frustrated machine release its pent-up feelings by going outdoors and self-propelling 10, ten miles? <laughs> Could a machine learn to enjoy the sweet pain of marathon running? Could a machine with a seeming zest for life destroy itself purposefully one day, planning the entire episode as to fool its mother machine into thinking, which of course machines cannot do, that it had perished by accident? These are the sort of questions that burned in Alan Turing's brain and taking another level. They reveal highlights of Turing's troubled life. It would require someone who shares much with Turing to plumb his story deeply enough to do it justice. And uh, Andrew Hodges, a young British writer with a doctorate in mathematics, has wonderfully succeeded in doing so. His 500-page biography of Turing, painstakingly put together from innumerable sources, including conversation with scores of people who knew Turing at various ages of his life, uh, provides a vivid picture, as one could hope, of the most complex and intriguing individual. And it's about time, for not only was Turing a very significant person in the science of the century, but his fascinating and difficult life illustrates serious problems that society has not grappled with successfully. So, you know, it goes to talk about, you know, his his life, you know, his his dealing with, uh, you know, you know, being a, a gay atheist, um, you know, eccentric uh, <laughs> English mathematician. So There's a lot on the, on the plate, um, you know. But things to things to be aware of, you know. Uh, the the you know Turing was uh, interested, in, you know, the mechanization of mathematical reason, which he first read about, you know, with Bertrand Russell. Um, you know, the understanding the Hilbert program, whose aim was to demonstrate the possibility of capturing in a single system all the valid principles of mathematical reasoning. In that system, all possible true consequences would flow out of a small set of axioms by means of a well-defined set of rules, um, like automobiles from assembly line or physical systems jumping from one state to another. The image of a machine uh, that jumped from one state to another according to the uh, finite set of rules became utmost in Turing's mind. What fascinated him was the idea that much meaningless action could also be viewed as having meanings. For instance, one rule-obeying machine might be viewed as making moves of chess, another as producing truths of mathematics, yet another as writing poetry. Which, to me, represents kind of like the beauty of human beings. 
Like we, we, you know, I think it was Einstein that said, uh, you know, it's, if you judge a fish by how it climbs a tree, it's an idiot. It's like, everybody's a genius. It's just trying to find out, you know, where, what it is that you are genius at. And we all are incredibly different. We'd all be considered human. We'd all be considered conscious. And, you know, the, the whole idea is that, you know, machines eventually will be that, that same level, you know, um, the, you know, goes to talk more about him. So, I mean, definitely check out more on Turing in the book that uh, Hofstetter was just talking about. Um, and the last thing I kind of want to do in this sort of intro um, is under, you know, talking about the, the Turing test um, or the initi or imitation game, um, as Turing called it, involved communication between a human inter- interrogator in an unknown language uh, using being. Knowing that there was a ferocious resistance to the image that computing machinery might soon, uh, or indeed ever, think, Turing took pains to point out the remarkable generality of the probing uh, allowed by his test by presenting a pair of short uh, sample dialogues in which it was shown how a skillful human interrogator might try to elicit odd and uh, recondite knowledge, subtle judgments, and even emotional responses from the unknown being. But most people remain skeptical about the Turing test, even after reading these dialogues, probably because they fear that they might be easily taken in by the wiles of superficial machine. They do not appreciate how deeply and broadly the Turing test potentially would allow them to probe. In his article, Turing raised nine plausible objections to his own imitation game approach um, to the question of mechanical thought and answered them uh, cogently one by one. The most serious one seems to be Lady Lovelance's objection that computers cannot originate anything but can only uh, can do only what we explicitly tell them to do. Turing's answer to this was that one does not know what one has programmed a machine to do except in the most superficial and general way has a depth that eludes many good minds. I suspect the Turing test profundity as an examination of an alleged thinking machine will only gradually seep into our culture as we collectively absorbed the subtle many layered complexities of computers. Um, a sad footnote in the early, in the early 1950s, the BBC uh, recorded several radio interviews with Turing on the subject of minds and machines, but for some reason did not uh, preserve any of them. And so we are left without a trace of a voice that by all accounts was quite peculiar and revealing. Even though Turing's own imitation game stressed the power of the printed word to convey all nuances of personality, it seemed poignant to think that the voice of such recent figure is forever lost. And we have to go on the written word. But, you know, uh, he had been fascinated by the problems of morphogenesis, how the whole organisms synchronize and coordinate their growth. As an example, is the fivefold symmetry of a starfish and how the world does a does a cell know what part of the organism it is in and how does various cells communicate with one another to plan the tricky overall pattern that they eventually uh, wind up forming? As if the card stunt section in a football stadium had to coordinate complex patterns entirely by having nearest neighbors talk with each other. Turing's mathematically based theories developed in the early 1950s and were typically ahead of their time even today as uh, they hold up well. And uh, sadly... um and sort of poetically, you know, Alan Turing ended up taking his own life uh, by a uh, Snow White and Seven Dwarves-esque uh, way with a cyanide-coated apple, um, you know. But check out Andrew Hodges's, um, you know, 
book on him and uh but anyway you, even if you just google a little bit about him and what i've you know said about it here totally sets up why the importance of this next dialogue is is worth your time so thank you and hope you get something out of it and hopefully someone messages me and wants to discuss about this and as a last thing i'm, I'm going to be doing the voices obviously of all three people in the dialogue um starts off with chris and sandy and a guy named pat comes in uh so for criticism it's gonna be more just like i kind of like my normal voice like duh, hey duh, you know a little faster sandy's i try to do kind of light and if i can feminine like this um not trying to say that you know women have to sound like that it's just my attempt to try to do enough versatility in my voice to play three characters so you can actually tell when someone's changing their voice instead of me just saying oh chris is speaking now so anyway uh chris will be like hey you know da 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 um, Sandy would be like, ah, da, da. and then Pat's going to have a deep voice. So should be able to distinguish, you know, each person. So anyway, here we go. Sandy, I want to thank you for suggesting that I read Alan Turing's article, Computing Machinery and Intelligence. It's a wonderful piece and certainly made me think and think about my thinking. Glad to hear it. Are you still as much of a skeptic about artificial intelligence as you used to be? You've got me wrong. I'm not against artificial intelligence. I think it's wonderful stuff, perhaps a little crazy, but why not? I simply am convinced that you AI advocates have far underestimated the human mind, and there are things a computer will never, ever be able to do. For instance, can you imagine a computer writing a Proust novel? The richness of imagination, the complexity of the characters? Rome wasn't built in a day. In the article, Turning comes across an interesting person. He is, is he still alive? No, he died back in 1954 at just 41. He'd only be 70 or so now. Although he is such a legendary figure, it seems strange to think that he could still be living today. How did he die? Almost certainly suicide. He was homosexual and had to deal with some pretty barbaric treatment or barbaric treatment and stupidity from the outside world. In the end, it got to be too much and he killed himself. That's horrendous, especially in this day and age. I know. What really saddens me is that he never got to see the amazing progress in computing machinery and theory that has taken place since 1954. Can you imagine how, he, how he'd been wowed? Yeah. Hey, are you two going to clue me in into what this Turing article is about? It is really about two things. One is the question, can a machine think? Or rather, will a machine ever think? The way Turing answers the question, he thinks the answer is yes. By the way, is um, is by battling down a series of objections to the idea one after another. The, one, uh, the other point he tries to make is that, as it stands, the question is not meaningful. It's too full of emotional connotations. Many people are upset by the suggestion that people are machines, or that machines might think. Turing tries to diffuse the question by casting it in less emotional terms. For instance, what do you think, Pat, of the idea of thinking machines? Frankly, I find the term confusing. You know what confuses me? It's those ads in the newspaper and on TV that talk about products that think, or intelligent ovens or whatever. I just don't know how seriously to take them. I know the kind of ads you mean, and they probably confuse a lot of people. On the one hand, we're always hearing the refrain, computers are really dumb. You have to spell everything out for them in words of one syllable. Yet on the other hand, we're constantly bombarded with advertising hype about smart products. That's certainly true. Do you know that one company has ever taken to calling its products dumb terminals in order to stand out from the crowd? It's a pretty clever gimmick. 
But even so, it just contributes to the trend towards a, uh, obfusic, obfuscation, obfuscation, obfuscation. The term electronic brain always comes to mind when I'm thinking about this. Many people swallow it. Oh, that's a pretty clever gimmick, but even so, it just contributes to the trend towards obfuscation. The term electronic brain always comes to my mind when I'm thinking about this. Many people swallow it completely and others reject it out of hand. It takes patience to sort out the issues and decide how much it makes sense. Does Turing suggest some way of resolving it? Some kind of IQ test for machines? That would be very interesting, but no machine could yet come close to taking an IQ test. Instead, Turing proposes a test that theoretically could be applied to any machine to determine whether or not it can think. Does the test give a clear-cut yes or no answer? I'd be skeptical if it claimed to. No, it doesn't claim to. In a way, that's one of its advantages. It shows how the borderline is quite fuzzy and how subtle the whole question is. And so, as usual in philosophy, it's all just a question of words. Maybe, but they're emotionally charged words, and so it's important, it seems to me, to explore the issue and try to map out the meaning of the crucial words. The issues are fundamental to our concept of ourselves, so we shouldn't just sweep them under the rug. Okay, so tell me, how's turning tests work? The idea is based on what he calls the imitation game. Imagine that a man and a woman go into separate rooms, and from there they can be interrogated by a third party via some sort of tel teletype setup. The third party can address questions to either room, but has no idea which person is in which room. For the interrogator, the idea is to determine which room the woman is in. The woman, by her answers, tries to help the interrogator as much as she can. The man, though, is doing his best to bamboozle the interrogator by responding as he thinks a woman might. And if he succeeds in fooling the interrogator, then the interrogator only gets to see written words, eh? And the sex of the author is supposed to shine through. That game sounds like a good challenge. I'd certainly like to take part in it someday. Would the interrogator have met either the man or the woman before the test began? Would any of them have known any of the others? That would probably be a bad idea. All kinds of subliminal cueing might occur if the interrogator knew one or both of them. It would certainly be best if all three people were totally unknown to one another. Could you ask any questions at all, with no hold bar? Absolutely, that's the whole idea. Don't you think then the pretty quickly it would degenerate into sex-oriented questions? I mean, I can only, I can imagine the man over-eager to act convincing, giving away the game by answering some very blunt questions that most women would find personal to answer. Even through an anonymous computer connection. That's a nice observation. I wonder if it's true. Another possibility would be to probe for knowledge of minute aspects of traditional sex role differences by asking about such things as dress sizes and so on. The psychology of the imitation game could get pretty subtle. I suppose whether the interrogation was interrogator was a woman or a man would make a difference. Don't you think that a woman could spot some telltale differences more quickly than a man could? If so, maybe the best way to tell a man from a woman is to tell each of them to play interrogator in an imitation game and see which of the two is better at telling a man from a woman. Hmm, that's a droll twist. Oh well, I don't know if this original version of the imitation game has ever been seriously tried out, despite the fact that it would be relatively easy to do the modern computer terminals. I have to admit, though, I'm not all sure what it would prove, um, whichever way it turned out. I was wondering about that. What would it prove if the interrogators, say a woman, couldn't tell correctly which person was the woman? It certainly wouldn't prove that the man was a woman. Exactly. 
What I find funny is that although I strongly believe in the idea of the Turing test, I'm not so sure I understand the point of its basis, the imitation game. As for me, I'm not any happier with the Turing test as a test for thinking machines than I am with the imitation game as a test for femininity. From what you two are saying, I gather the Turing test is some kind of extension of the imitation game, only involving a machine and a person instead of a man and a woman. That's the idea. The machine tries its hardest to convince the interrogator that it's the human being, and the human tries to make it clear that he or she is not the computer. The machine tries? Isn't that a loaded way of putting it? Sorry, but this, that's the most natural way to say it. Anyway, this test sounds pretty interesting, but how do you know that it will get the essence of thinking? Maybe it's testing for the wrong things. Maybe just to, to take a random illustration, someone would feel that a machine was able to think only if it could dance so well that you couldn't tell it was a machine. Or someone else could suggest that some other, some other characteristic. What's so sacred about being able to fool people by typing at them? I don't see how you can say such a thing. I've heard that the objection before, but frankly, it baffles me. So what if a machine can't tap dance or drop a rock on your toe? If it can discourse intelligently on any subject you want, then it has shown that it can think, to me at least. As I see it, Turing has drawn, in one clean stroke, a clear division between thinking and other aspects of being human. Now you're the baffling one. If you couldn't conclude anything from a man's ability to win at the imitation game, how could you conclude anything from the machine's ability to win at the turning game? Good question. Well, it seems to me you could conclude something from the man's win in the imitation game. You wouldn't conclude he is a woman, but you could certainly say he is good at insights into feminine mentality, if there is such a thing. Now, if a computer could fool someone into thinking it was a person, I guess you'd have to say something similar about it, that it had good insights into what it's like to be human, into the human condition, whatever that is. Maybe, but that isn't necessarily equivalent to thinking, is it? It seems to me that passing the Turing test would merely prove that some machine or other could do a very good job of simulating thought. I couldn't agree more with that, Pat. We all know the fancy computer programs exist today for simulating all sorts of complex phenomena. In theoretical physics, for instance, we simulate the behavior of particles, atoms, solids, liquids, gases, galaxies, and so on. But no one confuses any of those simulations with the real thing. In his book Brainstorms, the philosopher Daniel Dennett makes a similar point about the simulated hurricanes. That's a nice example, too. Obviously, what goes on inside a computer when it's simulating a hurricane is not a hurricane, but the machine's memory doesn't get torn to bits by 200 mile per hour winds. On the floor of the machine, or the floor of the machine, the room doesn't get flooded with rainwater and so on. Oh, come on, that's not a fair argument. In the first place, the programmers don't claim the simulation really is a hurricane. It's merely a simulation of certain aspects of a hurricane. But in the second place, you're pulling a fast one when you imply that there are no downpours or 200-mile-an-hour winds in a simulated hurricane. To us, there aren't any, but if the program were incredibly detailed, it could include simulated people on the ground who would experience the wind and the rain, just as we do, when a hurricane hits in their minds... Or, if you'd rather, in their simulated minds, the hurricane would be not a simulation, but a genuine phenomenon complete with drenching and devastation. Oh my, what a science fiction scenario. Now we're talking about simulating whole populations, not just a single mind. Well, look, I'm trying to show you why your argument that a simulated McCoy isn't the real McCoy is fallacious. It depends on the tacit assumption that any old observer of the simulated phenomenon is equally able to assess what's going on. But in fact, it may take an observer with a special vantage point to recognize what is going on. 
In the hurricane case, it takes special computational glasses to see the rain and the wind. Computational glasses? I don't know what you're talking about. I mean to see that the wind and the wetness of the hurricane you have to be able to look at in the proper way. You, no, 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 a simulated hurricane isn't wet. No matter how much it might seem wet to simulated people, it won't ever genuinely be wet. And no computer will ever get torn apart in the process of simulating winds. Well, certainly not, but that's irrelevant. You're just confusing levels. The laws of physics don't get torn apart by real hurricanes either. In the case of simulated hurricane, if you go peering at any or at the computer's memory, expecting to find broken wires and so forth, you'll be disappointed. But look at the proper level. Look at the structures that are coded for memory. You'll see that the many abstract links have been broken. Many value, values of variables radically changed, and so on. There's your flood, your devastation. Real, only a little concealed, a little hard to detect. I'm sorry, I just can't buy that. You're insisting that I look for a new kind of devastation? One never before associated with hurricanes? That way you call anything a hurricane as long as its effects seen through your special glasses could be called floods and devastation? Right, you've got it exactly. You recognize a hurricane by its effects. You have no way of going in and finding some ethereal essence of hurricane, some hurricane soul, right in the middle of the storm's eye. Nor is there any ID card to be found that certifies hurricane hood. It's just the existence of a certain kind of pattern, a spiral storm with an eye and so forth, that makes you say it's a hurricane. Of course, there are a lot of things you insist on before you call something a hurricane. Well, wouldn't you say that being an atmospheric phenomenon is a prerequisite? How can anything inside a computer be a storm? To me, a simulation is a simulation is a simulation. And I suppose you would say that even the calculations computers do are simulated, or that they are fake calculations? Only people can do genuine calculations, right? Well, computers get the right answers, so their calculations are not exactly fake, but they're just patterns. There's no understanding going on here. Take a cash register. Can you honestly say that you feel it is calculating something when it gears mesh together? And the step from the cash register to computer is very short, as I understand things. If you mean that a cash register doesn't feel like a school kid doing an arithmetic problem, I'll agree. But is that what, uh, what calculation means? Is that an integral part of it? If so, then contrary to what everybody's thought up till now, we'll have to write a very complicated program indeed to perform genuine calculations. Of course, this program will sometimes get careless and make mistakes, and it will sometimes crawl its answers illegibly, or scrawl, and it will occasionally doodle on its paper. It won't be any more reliable than the store clerk who adds up to your total by hand. Now, I happen to believe that everything... Eventually, such a program could be written. Then we'd know something about how clerks and school kids work. I can't believe you'd, you'd ever be able to do that. Well, maybe not, but that's not my point. You say a cash register can calculate, or can't calculate, it reminds me of another favorite passage of mine from Dennett's Brainstorms. It goes something like, Cash registers can't really calculate. They can only spin their gears. But cash registers can't really spin their gears either. They can only follow the laws of physics. Dennett said it originally about computers. I modified it to talk about cash registers, and you could use the same line of reasoning in talking about people. People can't really calculate. All they can do is manipulate mental symbols. But they aren't really manipulating symbols. All they are doing is firing various neurons in various patterns. But they can't really make their neurons fire. They simply have to let the laws of physics make, make them fire for them. Etc. Don't you see how this reductio ad absurdum would lead you to conclude that calculation doesn't exist? 
that hurricanes don't exist, in fact, and that nothing at higher, higher than particles and the laws of physics exist? What do you gain by saying that a computer only pushes symbols around and doesn't truly calculate? That example may be extreme, but it makes my point that there's a vast difference between a real phenomenon and a simulation of it. This is, so for hurricanes, even more so for human thought. Look, I don't want to get too tangled up in this line of argument, but let me try to one more example. If you were a radio ham listening to another ham broadcasting in Morse code, and you were responding in Morse code, could it sound funny to you to refer the person at the other end? Or refer to the person at the other end? No, that would sound okay, although the existence of a person at the other end would be an assumption. Yes, but you wouldn't likely to go check it out. You're prepared to recognize personhood through, or personhood those rather unusual channel. You don't have to see a human body or hear a voice. All you need is a rather abstract manifestation, a code, as it were. What I'm getting at is this. To see the person behind the dits and das, you have to willingly be able to do some decoding, some interpretation. It's not direct perception, it's indirect. You have to peel off layer or two to find the reality hidden in there. You put on your radio ham glasses and see the person behind the buzzes. Just as, just with the simulated hurricane, you don't see it darkening. The machine room, you have the coding machine's memory. Or you have to decode the machine's memory. You have to put on a special memory decoding glasses. Then, then what you see is a hurricane. Oh, ho, ho. Talk about fast ones. Wait a minute. In the case of the shortwave radio, there's a real person out there, someone in the Fiji Islands or wherever. My decoding act as I sit by my radio simply reveals that the person exists. It's like seeing a shadow and concluding there's an object out there casting it. One doesn't confuse the shadow with the object, however. And with a hurricane, there's no real storm behind the scenes, making the computer follow its patterns. No, what you have is just a shadow hurricane without any genuine hurricane. I just refuse to confuse shadow with reality. All right, I don't want to drive this point to the ground. I even admit it's pretty silly to say that have a simulated hurricane is a hurricane, but I want to point out that it's not as silly as you might think at first blush. And when you turn into simulated thought, then you've got a very different matter on your hands from simulated hurricanes. I don't see why. You have to convince me. Well, to do so, I'll have to make a couple of extra points about hurricanes. Oh, no. All right, all right. Nobody can just say exactly what a hurricane is, that is, in t totally precise terms. There's an abstract pattern that many storms share, and for that reason we call these storms hurricanes. But it's not possible to make a sharp distinction between hurricanes and non-hurricanes. There are tornadoes, cyclones, typhoons, dust devils. Uh, is the great red spot on Jupiter a hurricane? Are sunspots hurricanes? Could there be a hurricane in the wind tunnel? In a test tube? In your imagination, you can extend the concept of hurricane to include a microscopic storm on the surface of a neutron star. That's not so far-fetched, you know. The concept of earthquake has actually been extended to neutron stars. The astrophysicists say that tiny changes in rate that once in a while are observed in the pulsing of a pulsar are caused by glitches, starquakes, and have just occurred on the neutron star surface. Oh, I remember that now. That glitch idea has always seemed eerie to me. A surrealistic kind of quivering on a surrealistic kind of surface. Can you imagine plate tectonics on a giant sphere of pure nuclear matter? That's a wild thought. So starquakes and earthquakes can both be subsumed into a new, more abstract category. And that's how science constantly extends familiar concepts, taking them further and further from familiar experience, and yet keeping some essence constant. 
The number system is the classic example. From positive numbers to negative numbers, then rationals, reals, complex numbers, and beyond zebra, as Dr. Seuss says. I think I see your point, Sandy. In biology, we have many examples of close relationships that are established in rather abstract ways. Often the decision about what family some species belongs to comes down to the abstract pattern shared at some level. Even the concepts of male and female turn out to be surprisingly abstract and elusive. When you base your system of classification on very abstract patterns, I suppose that broad variety of phenomena can fall into the same class, even if many superficial ways the class members are utterly unlike one another. So perhaps I can glimpse at a little how to you a simulated hurricane could, in a funny sense, be a hurricane. Perhaps the word that's being extended is not hurricane, but be. How so? If Turing can extend the verb think, can't I extend the verb be? All I mean is that when simulated things are deliberately confused with genuine things, somebody's doing a lot of philosophical wool-pulling. It's a lot more serious than just extending a few nouns, such as hurricane. I like your idea that B is being extended. I sure don't agree with you about the wool-pulling. Anyway, if you don't object, let me say one more thing about simulated hurricanes, and then I'll get to simulated minds. Suppose you consider a really deep simulation of a hurricane. I mean simulation of every atom, which I admit, sort of ridiculous, but still consider it for the sake of argument. Okay. I hope you would agree that it would then share all the abstract structures that define the essence of hurricanehood. So what's to keep you from calling it a hurricane? I thought you were backing off from the claim of equality. So did I, but these examples came up and I was forced back to my claim. But let me back off, as I said I would do, and get back to the thought, which is real issue here. Thought, even more than hurricanes, is an abstract structure, a way of describing some complex events that in any one of the several billion brains, there are, are all these physically uh, very different brains, and yet they all support the same thing, uh, thinking. What's important, then, is the abstract pattern, not the medium. The same kind of swirling can happen inside any of them, so no one person can claim to think more genuinely than any other. Now, if we come up with some new kind of medium in which the same style of swirling takes place, could you deny that the thinking is taking place in it? Probably not, but you have just shifted the question. The question now is, how can you determine whether the same style of swirling is really happening? The beauty of the Turing test is it tells you when, don't you see? I don't see that at all. How would you know the same style of activity was going on inside a computer as inside my mind simply because is simply because it answered questions as I do? All you're looking at um, is its outside. I'm sorry, I disagree entirely. How could you know that when I speak to you, anything similar to what you call thinking is going on inside me? The Turing test is a fantastic probe, something like a particle accelerator in physics. Here, Chris, I think you'll like this analogy. Just as in physics, when you want to understand what is going on in an atomic or subatomic level, since you can't see it directly, you scatter accelerated particles off a target and observe their behavior. From this, you infer the internal nature of the target. The Turing test extends the idea to the mind. It treats the mind as a target that is not directly visible, but whose structure can be deduced more abstractly. By scattering questions off a target mind, you learn about its internal workings, just as in physics. Well, to be more exact, you can hypothesize about what kinds of internal structures might, or stru yeah, structures might account for the behavior observed. 
but please remember that they may or may not, in fact, exist. Hold on now. Are you suggesting that atomic nuclei are merely hypothetical entities? After all, their existence, or should I say hypothetical existence, was proved, or should I say suggested, by the behavior of particles scattered off atoms. I would agree, but you know, physical systems seem to me to be much simpler than the mind, and certainly of the inferences made uh, correspondingly greater, and the conclusions are confirmed over and over again by different types of experiments. Yes, but those experiments are still of the same sort, scattering, detecting things indirectly. You can never handle an electron or a quark. Physics experiments are also correspondingly harder to do and to interrupt. Often they take years and years, and dozens of collaborations are involved. In the Turing test, though, just one person could perform many high, delicate experiments in the course of no more than an hour. I maintain that people give other people credit for being conscious simply because of their continual external monitoring of other people, which is itself something like a Turing test. Well, that may be roughly true, but it involves more than just conversing with people through a teletype. We see that other people have bodies, we watch their faces and expressions. We can see that they are human beings, and so we think they think. To me, that seems a narrow, anthropocentric view of what thought is. Does that mean that you would sooner say a mannequin is a store, in a store thinks than a wonderfully programmed computer, simply because the mannequin looks more human? Obviously, I would need more than just vague physical resemblance to the human form to be willing to attribute the power of, of thought to an entity. But that organic quality, the sameness of origin, undeniably lends to a degree of credibility that is very important. <clears throat> well, here we disagree. I find this simply too chauvinistic. I feel the key thing is the similarity of internal structure, not bodily, organic, chemical structure, but organizational structure software. Whether an entity can think seems to me a question of whether its organization can be described in a certain way. I'm perfectly willing to believe that a Turing test detects the presence of absence of the mode of organization. I would say that, that you're depending on my physical body as evidence that I am thinking that I'm a thinking being is rather shallow. The way I see it, the Turing test looks far deeper than, um, than at mere external form. Hey now, you're not giving me much credit. It's not just the shape of the body that lends weight to the idea and there, that there's real thinking going on inside. It's also, as I said, the idea of common origin. It's the idea that you and I both sprang from DNA molecules, an idea to which I attribute much more depth. Put it this way, the external form of human bodies reveals that they share a deep biological history. And it's depth that lends a lot of credibility to the notion that the owner of such a body can think. But that is all indirect evidence. Surely you want some direct evidence. That's what the Turing test is for. And I think it's the only way to test for thinkhood. <laughs> but you could be fooled by the Turing test just as an interrogator could mistake a man for a woman. I admit, I could be fooled if I carried out the, Turing, the test in too quick or too shallow a way but I would go for the deepest things I could think of. I wouldn't want to see the program could understand jokes, or better yet, make them. That would be a real test of intelligence. I agree that humor is probably an acid test for a supposedly intelligent program, but equally important to me, perhaps more so, would be the test, its emotional responses. So I would ask it about its reactions to certain pieces of music or works of literature, especially my favorite ones. What if I said, I don't know that piece, or even, I have no interest in music? What if I tried its hardest, oops, sorry, Pat, let me try that again. What if 
it did everything it could to steer clear of emotional topics and references. That would certainly make me suspicious. Any consistent pattern of avoiding certain issues would raise serious doubts in my mind as to whether I was dealing with a thinking being. Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Why not just conclude you're dealing with a thinking but unemotional being? You've hit upon a sensitive point. I've thought about this for quite a long time, and I've concluded that I simply can't believe emotions and thought can be divorced. To put it another way, I think emotions are an automatic byproduct of the ability to think. They are entailed to the very nature of thought. That's an interesting conclusion. But what if you're wrong? What if I produced a machine that could think but not emote? Then its intelligence might go unrecognized because it failed to pass your kind of test. I'd like you to point out to me where the boundary line between emotional questions and non-emotional ones lies. You might want to ask about the meaning of a great novel. The certainty, or this certainly requires an understanding of human emotions. Now, is that thinking or merely cool calculation? You might want to ask about the subtle choice of words. For that, you need an understanding of their connotations. Turning use, uses examples like this in the article. You might want to ask for advice about complex romantic situation. The machine would need to know a lot about human motivations and their roots. If it failed at this kind of task, I would not be much inclined to say that it could think. As far as I'm concerned, thinking, feeling, and consciousness are just different facets of one phenomenon, and one and no one of them can be present without the others. Why wouldn't you build a machine that could feel nothing? Or why would you build a machine that could feel nothing? We all know machines don't feel anything. That could think and make complex decisions anyway. I don't see any contradiction there. Well, I do. I think that when you say that, you are visualizing a metallic rectangular machine, probably in an air-conditioned room, a hard, angular, cold object with a million colored wires inside it, a machine that's stock on a still-tiled floor, humming and buzzing or whatever, and spinning its tapes. Such a machine can play a good game of chess, which, I freely admit, involves a lot of decision-making, and yet I would never call it conscious. How come? To merchants, isn't chess-playing machines rudimentary conscious? Not to this me me uh, mechanist. The way I see it, consciousness has got to come from the precise pattern of organization. Once we haven't yet figured out, or when we haven't figured out how to describe in any detailed way, but I believe we will gradually come to understand it. In my view, consciousness requires a certain way of mirroring the external universe internally, and the ability to respond to that external reality on the basis of the internally represented model. And then in addition, what's really crucial for a conscious machine is that it should incorporate a well-developed and flexible self-model. And it's there that all the existing programs, including the best chess-playing ones, fall down. Don't chess programs look ahead and see themselves as they're figuring out their next move? If my opponent moves here, then I'll go there, and if they go this way, I go that way? Doesn't that usage of the concept I require a, self, a sort of self-model? Not really. Or if you want, it's extremely limited one. It's an understanding of self is only the narrowest sense. For instance, a chess playing program has no concept of why it is playing chess, or the fact that it is a program, or is in computer, uh, or it has a human opponent. It has no idea of what is winning and losing are, or... How do you know it has no such sense? How can you presume to say what a chess program feels or knows? Oh, come on. We know that certain things don't feel anything or know anything. A, th a thrown stone doesn't know anything about parabolas. And a whirling fan doesn't know anything about air. It's true, I can prove those statements, but I can't prove those statements, but here we are verging on questions of faith. That reminds me of the Taoist story I read. It goes something like this. Two sages were standing on a bridge over a stream. One said to the other, I wish I were a fish. They are so happy. The other replied, 
How do you know whether fish are happy or not? You're not a fish. The first said, but you're not me. So how do you know whether I know how, I f how fish feel? Beautiful. Talking about consciousness really does call for a certain amount of restraint. Otherwise, you might as well jump on the solipsism bandwagon. I am the only conscious being in the universe. Or the panpsychism bandwagon. Everything universe is conscious. Well, how do you know? Maybe everything is conscious. Oh, Pat, if you're going to join the club that maintains that stones and even particles like electrons have some sort of consciousness, then I guess we part company here. That's a kind of mysticism I can't fathom. As for chess programs, I happen to know how they work, and I can tell you for sure they aren't conscious. No way. Why not? They incorporate only the barest knowledge about the goals of chess. The notion of playing is turned into a mechanical act, comparing a lot of numbers and choosing the biggest one over and over. Again, a chess program has no sense of disappointment about losing, or pride in winning. Its self-model is very crude. It gets away with doing the least it can do, just enough to play a game of chess, nothing more. Yet, interestingly enough, we still tend to talk about the desires of a chess-playing computer. We say, it wants to keep its king behind a row of pawns, or it likes to get its rook out early, or uh, it thinks I don't see that hidden fork. Yes, we do the same thing with insects. We spot lonely ants somewhere and say, it's trying to get back home, or I want to drag that dead bee to the colony. Or, in fact, with any animal, we use terms that indicate emotions, but we don't know for certain how much animal feels. I have no trouble talking about the dog and cats being happy or sad, having desires or beliefs and so on, but of course, I don't think their sadness is as deep and complex as human sadness. But you wouldn't call it simulated sadness, would you? No, of course not. I think it's real. It's hard to avoid the use of such teleological or, menta or mentalistic terms. I believe they're quite justified. Although, they shouldn't be carried too far. They simply don't have the same richness of meaning when applied to present-day chess programs as when applied to people. I still can't see the intelligence has to evolve or involve emotions. Why couldn't you imagine an intelligence that simply calculates and has no feeling? A couple of answers here. One, or number one rather, any intelligence has to have motivations. It's simply not the case whether many people think that machines can think any more objectively than people do. Machines, when they look at a scene, will have to focus and filter a scene down into preconceived categories, just as the person does, and that means seeing some things, missing others. It means giving more weight to some things than to others. This happens on every level of processing. I'm not sure I'm following you. Take me right now, for instance. You might think I'm just making some intellectual points. I wouldn't need emotions to do that, but what makes me care about these points? Just now, why did I stress the work I care so heavily. I'm emotionally involved in this conversation. People talk to each other out of conviction, not out of hollow mechanical reflexes. Even the most intellectual conversation is driven by underlying passions. There's an emotional undercurrent to every conversation. It's the fact that speakers want to be listened to, um, understood, and respected for what they are saying. It sounds to me that if, uh, if all you're saying is that people need to be interested in what they're saying, otherwise a conversation dies. Right. I wouldn't bother to talk to anyone if I weren't motivated in interest. An interest is just another name for a whole constellation of subconscious biases. When I talk, all my biases work together, and when you perceive on the surface level is my personality, my style. But that style arises from an immense number of tiny priorities, biases, leanings. When you hold, or when you add a million of them interacting together, you get something that amounts to a lot of desires. It just all adds up, and then brings me to the answer Chris 
or to, to answer that, other answers to Chris's question about feeling less calculation. Sure, that exists in a cash register, a pocket calculator. I'd say it's even true of all today's computer programs. But eventually, when you put enough feelingness or feelingless calculations together in a huge coordinated organization, you get something that has properties on another level. You can see it, in fact, to have to see it, not as a bunch of little calculations, but as a system of tendencies and desires and beliefs and so on. When things get complicated enough, they're forced to change your level of description. To some extent, that's already happening, which is why we use words such as want, think, try, hope, to describe chess programs and other attempts to mechanical th or mechanical thought. Then it calls that kind of level switch by the observer, adopting the internal or intentional stance. The really interesting thing is AI will only begin to happen, I guess, when the program itself adopts the internal stance towards itself. That would be very strange sort of level crossing feedback loop. Certainly would. When a program looks at itself from the outside, as it were, and tries to figure out why it acted the way it did, then I'll start to think that there's someone in there doing the looking. You mean an I, a self? Yes, something like that. A soul, even. Although not in a religious sense, of course, it's highly premature for anything to adopt the intentional stance and the full force of the term with respect to today's programs. At least that's my opinion. For me, an important related question is, to what extent is it valid to adopt the intentional stance towards being other, or beings other than humans? I would certainly adopt the intentional stance towards mammals. I vote for that. Now that's interesting. How can that be, Sandy? Surely you wouldn't claim a dog or a cat can pass the Turing test. Yeah, you don't maintain the Turing test is the only way to test for the presence of consciousness. How can you have these beliefs simultaneously? Hmm, alright. I guess that my argument is really just that the Turing test works only above a certain level of consciousness. I'm perfectly willing to grant that there can be thinking beings that could fail at the Turing test. But the main point that I've been arguing for for that is that anything passes, it would... Anything that does pass, it would be genuinely conscious, thinking being. How can you think of a computer as a conscious being? I apologize if what I'm going to say sounds like a stereotype, but when I think of conscious beings, I just can't connect the thought with machines. To me, consciousness is connected with soft, warm bodies. Silly, though it may sound. That does sound odd, coming from a biologist. Don't you deal with life uh, so much in terms of chemistry and physics that all magic seems to vanish? Not really. Sometimes the chemistry and physics simply increase the feeling that there's something magical going on down there. Anyway, I can't always integrate my scientific knowledge with my gut feelings. I guess I share that trait. So how do you deal with the rigid preconceptions like mine? I'd try to dig out down from under the surface of your concept of machine and get to the intuitive connections that lurk there. Out of sight, but deeply influencing your opinions. I think we all have a holdover image from the Industrial Revolution that sees machines as clunky iron contraptions, gawkily moving under the power of some loudy chugging engine. Possibly that's even how computer inventor Charles Babbage saw people. After all, he called his magnificent, many-geared computer the analytical engine. Well, I certainly don't think the people were just fancy steam shovels with electric uh, can openers or electric can openers. There's something about people, something that they... They've got this sort of flame inside them, something alive, something that flickers unpredictably, wavering, uncertain, but something creative. Yeah, great. That's just the sort of thing I want to hear. It's very human to think that way. Your flame image makes me think of candles, of fires, of vast thunderstorms, with lightning dancing all over the sky in crazy, tumultuous patterns. But do you realize that just kind of thing is visible on a computer's console? 
that flickering lights form amazing chaotic sparkling patterns. It's such a far cry from the heaps of lifeless clanging metal. It is flame-like by God. Why don't you tell the whole world, why don't you let the word machine conjure up images of dancing patterns or light rather than of giant steam shovels? That's a beautiful image, Sandy. It does tend to change my sense of me mechanism from being matter-oriented to being pattern-oriented. makes me try to visualize the thoughts in my mind. These thoughts, right now even, as a huge spray of tiny pulses flickering in my brain. That's quite a poetic self-portrait for a mere spray of flickers to have come up with. Thank you. But still, I'm not totally convinced that a machine is all that I am. I admit my concept of machine probably does suffer from anachronistic subconscious flavors, but I'm afraid I can't change such a deeply rooted sense in a flash. At least you sound open-minded, and to tell you the truth, part of me sympathizes with the way you and Pat view machines. Part of me balks at you, um, part of me balks at calling myself a machine. It is bizarre thought that a feeling being like you, or me, might emerge from mere circuitry. Do I surprise you? You certainly surprise me. So to tell us, do you believe the idea of an intelligent computer, or don't you? It all depends on what you mean. We're all heard the question, can computers think? There are several possible interpretations of this, aside from the many interpretations of the word think, that revolve around different meanings of the word can and computer. Back to word games again. I'm sorry, but that's unavoidable. First of all, the question might mean, does some present-day computer think right now? To this, I would immediately answer with a loud no. Then it could be taken to mean, could some present-day computer, if suitably programmed, potentially think? That would be more like it. But I would still answer, probably not. The real difficulty hinges on the word computer. The way I see it, computer calls up an image of what I just described earlier, an air-conditioned room with cold rectangular metal boxes in it, but I suspect that with increasing public familiarity with computers and continued progress in computer uh, architecture, that vision will eventually become outmoded. Don't you think computers as we know them will be around for a while? Sure, there will have to be some computers in today's image around for a long time, but advanced computers, maybe no longer called computers, will evolve and become quite different. Probably, as with living organisms, there will be many branching in the evolutionary tree. There will be computers for business, computers for schoolwork, computers for scientific calculations, computers for sy systems research, computers for simulation, for rockets going into space, and so on. Finally, there will be computers for the study of intelligence. It's really only these last that I'm thinking of, the ones with the maximum flexibility, the ones that people are deliberately attempting to make smart. I see no reason that these will stay fixed in the traditional image. They probably will soon acquire, as standard features, rudimentary sensory systems, mostly for vision and hearing at first. They will need to be able to move around to explore. They will have to be physically flexible. In short, they will have to become more animal-like, more self-reliant. It makes me think of the robots R2-D2 and C-3PO in the movie Star Wars. Not me. In fact, I don't think anything remotely like them when I visualize intelligent machines. They are too silly, too much like the product of a film designer's imagination. Now that I have a clear vision of my own, but I think it's necessary if people are realistically going to try to imagine an artificial intelligence to go beyond the limited hard-edged picture of computers that comes from exposure to what we have today. The only thing all machines will always have in common is that their underlying mechanicalness. That may sound cold and inflexible, but then just think what could be more mechanical in a wonderful way than the workings of DNA and proteins and organ organelles in our cells. To me, what goes on inside a cell has 
a wet, slippery feel to it. And what goes inside a machine is dry and rigid. It's connected with the fact that computers don't make mistakes. The computers only do what you tell them to do. Or at least, that's my image of computers. Funny, a minute ago your image was of a flame and now it's of something wet and slippery. Isn't it marvelous how contradictory we can be? I don't need your sarcasm. No, no, I'm not being sarcastic. I really do think it's marvelous. It's just an example of the human's mind's slippery nature, mine in this case. True, but your image of computers is stuck in a rut. Computers certainly can make mistakes, and I don't mean on hardware level. Think of any present-day computer predicting the weather. It can make wrong predictions, even though its program runs flawlessly. But that's only because you fed it the wrong data. Not so. It's because whether prediction is too complex, any such program has to make do with limited amount of data. Entirely correct data and extrapolate from there. Sometimes it will make wrong predictions. It's no different from a farmer gazing at the clouds and saying, I reckon we'll get a little snow tonight. In our heads, we make models of things and use those models to guess how the world will behave. We have to make do with our models, however inaccurate they may be. Evolution will prune us out ruthlessly. We'll fall off a cliff or something. As for intelligent computers, it'll be the same. It's just that human designers will speed up the evolutionary process by aiming explicitly at the goal of creating intelligence, which is something nature just stumbles upon. So you think computers will be making fewer mistakes as they get smarter? Actually, just the other way around. The smarter they get, the more they'll be in a position to tackle messy real-life domains, so they'll be more and more likely to have inaccurate models. To me, mistake-making is a sign of high intelligence. Wow, you throw me sometimes. I guess I'm a strange sort of advocate for machine intelligence. To some degree, I straddle the fence. I think that machines won't really be intelligent in a human-like way until they have something like your biological wetness and slipperiness to them. I don't mean literally wet. The slipperiness would be in the software. But biological seeming, or two intelligent machines, will in any case be machines. We have designed them, built them, or grown them. We'll understand how they work, at least in some sense. Possibly no one person will really understand them, but collectively we would know how they work. Sounds like you want to have your cake and eat it too. I mean, you want to have people be able to build intelligent machines yet at the same time have some of the mystery of mind remain. You're absolutely right. I think that's what will happen when real artificial intelligence comes. Now that's a nice contradiction in terms. Touche. Well, anyway, when it comes, it will be mechanical and yet at the same time organic. It will have the same astonishing flexibility that we see in life's mechanisms. And when I say mechanisms... I mean mechanisms. DNA and enzymes and so on really are mechanical and rigid and reliable. Wouldn't you agree, Pat? Sure, but when they work together, a lot of unexpected things happen. There's so many complexities and rich modes and behavior that all the mechanicalness adds up to something very fluid. For me, it's almost unimaginable transition from the mechanical level of molecules to the living level of cells. But it's that exposure to biology that convinces me that people are machines. That thought makes me un uncomfortable in some ways, but in other ways, it's exhilarating. I have one nagging question. If people are machines, how come it's so hard to convince them of the fact? Surely a machine ought to be able to recognize its own machinehood. It's an interesting question. You have to allow for emotional factors here. To be told you're a machine in a way. To be told that you're nothing more than your physical parts and brings you face to face with your own vulnerability, destructibility, and ultimately your mortality. That's something nobody finds easy to face. But beyond this emotional objection, to see yourself as a machine, you have to unadopt the intentional stance that you've grown up talking or taking towards yourself. 
you have to jump all the way from level where the complex lifelike activities take place to the bottom most mechanical level where ribosomes chug along. RNA strands, for instance. But there are so many intermediate layers that they act as a shield, and the mechanical quality way down there becomes almost invisible. I think that when intelligent machines come around, that's how they will seem to us and to themselves. Their mechanicalness will be buried so deep that they'll seem to be alive and conscious, just as we seem alive and conscious. You're baiting me, but I'm going to bite. I once heard a funny idea about what will happen when we eventually have intelligent machines. When we try to implant the intelligence into devices we will, we'd like to control, like behavior won't be predictable. They'll have quirky little flame inside, maybe. Maybe. And what's so funny about that? Well, I think of military missiles, the more sophisticated their target tracking computers get, according to this idea, the less predictable they will function. Eventually, you'll have missiles that will decide they are pacifists and will turn around and go home and land quietly without blowing up. We could even have smart bullets that turn into mid-flight because they don't want to commit suicide. What a nice vision. I'm very skeptical about this. Still, Sandy, I'd like to hear your predictions about when intelligent machines will come to be. It won't be for, long t- for a long time, probably, and we'll see anything remotely resembling the level of human intelligence. It rests on too awesomely complicated a substitute, the brain, for us to be able to duplicate it in the foreseeable future. Anyhow, that's my opinion. Do you think the program level will pass the Turing test? That's a pretty hard question. I guess there are various degrees of passing such a test, and when you come down to it, it's not black and white. First of all, it depends on who the interrogator is. A simpleton might totally be taken by some programs today, but secondly, it depends on how deeply you're allowed to probe. Could have a range of Turing tests, one-minute versions, five-minute versions, hour-long versions, and so forth. Wouldn't it be interesting if some official organization sponsored a periodic competition, like the Animal Computer Chess Championship, for programs to try to pass the Turing test? Ah, the program lasted the longest against a panel of distinguished judges would be the winner. Perhaps there could be a big prize for the first program uh, that fools a famous judge for, say, ten minutes? A prize for the program or for its author? For the program, of course. That's ridiculous. What would a program do with the prize? Come now, Pat. If a program's human enough to fool the judges, don't you think it's human enough to enjoy the prize? It's precisely the threshold where, rather than its creators, deserves the credit and the reward, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah, especially if the prize is an evening out on the, the town dancing with the interrogators. I'd certainly like to see something like that established. Um, I think it could be hilarious to watch the first programs flop pathetically. You're pretty skeptical for an AI advocate, aren't you? Well, you think any computer program today could pass the five-minute Turing test, given a sophisticated interrogator? I seriously doubt it. It's partially because no one really working on it explicitly. I should mention, though, that there is one program whose inventors claim it already has passed a rudimentary version of the Turing test. It's called Perry. In a series of remotely conducted interviews, it fooled several psychiatrists who were told they were talking to either a computer or a paranoid patient. This was an improvement over the earlier version, in which psychiatrists were simply handed transcripts of short interviews asked to determine which ones were with a genuine paranoid and which ones were with a computer simulation. You mean they didn't have the chance to ask the questions? That's a severe handicap, and it doesn't seem in the spirit of the Turing test. Imagine someone trying to tell which sex I belong to just by reading a transcript of a few remarks by me. might be very hard. I'm glad the procedure has been approved. 
How do you get a computer to act like a paranoid? Now, just a moment. I didn't say it does act like a paranoid, only that some psychiatrists under unusual circumstances thought so. One of the things that he bothered me about the pseudo-Turing test is the way Perry works. He, as the people who designed it call it, acts like a paranoid in that he gets abruptly defensive and veers away from undesirable topics in the conversation. In effect, Perry maintains strict control so that no one can truly probe him. For reasons like this, simulating a paranoid is a whole lot easier than simulating a normal person. I wouldn't doubt that. It reminds me of the joke about the easiest kind of human being for a computer program to simulate. What is that? A catatonic patient. They just sit and do nothing for all days on end. Even I could write a computer program that could do that. An interesting thing about Perry is that it creates no sentences on its own. It merely selects from a huge repertoire of canned sentences the one that some sense responds best to the input sentence. Amazing, but that would probably be impossible on a larger scale, wouldn't it? You better believe it, to use a canned remark. Actually, this is something that's really not appreciated enough. The number of sentences you need to store in order to be able to respond in a normal way to all possible turns that a conversation could take is more than astronomical. It's really unimaginable. And they would have to be so intricately indexed for retrieval. Anybody who thinks that somehow a program could be rigid or rigged up just to pull sentences out of the storage like uh, records in a jukebox and that this program could pass the Turing test hasn't thought very hard about it. The funny part is that just this kind of unrealizable parrot program that most critics of artificial intelligence cite when they argue against the concept of the Turing test. Instead of imagining a truly intelligent machine, they want you to envision a gigantic lumbering robot that intones canned sentences in the dull monotone. They set up the imagery in a contradictory way. They managed to convince you that you could see through to its mechanical level with ease, even as it's simultaneously performing tasks that we think of as fluid, intelligent processes. Then the critics say, you see, a machine could pass the Turing test, <clears throat> and yet it would still be just a mechanical device, not intelligent at all. I see things almost the opposite way. If I were shown a machine that could do things like things that I can do, I mean, pass the Turing test then, instead of feeling insulted or threatened, I'd chime in with the philosopher Raymond Smolian and say, how wonderful machines are. If you could ask a computer just one question in the Turing test, what would it be? Um, how about this? If you could ask a computer just one question in the Turing test, what would it be? So that I find that's a very interesting dialogue, and I, I like I like the whole concept of of how it kind of takes you a lot of different places of of what what we consider to be human and why or why well, not say human but conscious and why and how we contradict ourselves on what that would be and even us trying to make a, a particular dialogue to either prove or not prove that something might have that consciousness may end up doing the opposite. So ah, I, I thought this was certainly worthy to read. Um, but in his uh, postscript to it, um, Hofstetter wrote, In 1983, I had the most delightful experience of getting to know a small group of extremely enthusiastic and original students at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. These students, about 30 in number, had been drawn together by Zamir Bavel, a professor in the computer science department who had organized a seminar 
on my book, Godel Escher Bach. He contacted me and asked me if there was any chance I could come to Lawrence and get together with his students. Something about his way of describing what was going on convinced me that this was a very unusual group that it would be worth my while to try it out. I therefore made a visit to Kansas and got to know both Samir and his group. All my expectations were met and surpassed. The students were full of ideas and warmth and made me feel very much at home. The first trip was so successful that I decided to again uh, do it again in a couple months later. This time, they threw an informal party at, at the apartment. Um, a few of them shared. Zamir had forewarned me that they were hoping to give me a demonstration of something that had already been done in recent class meeting. It seems that the question of whether computers could think had arisen, and most of the group members had taken a negative stand on the issue. Rod uh, Ogborn, the student had been leading the discussion, had asked the class if they would consider any of the following programs intelligent. One, a program that could pass a course in beginning programming, i.e., that could take informational descriptions of tasks and turn them into good working programs. Two, a program that could act like a psychotherapist, Rod gave me a sample of dialogues with the famous doctor program, also known as Eliza by Joseph Weizenbaum. And three, a program called Boris, written by uh, written at Yale by Michael Dyer, that could read stories in a limited domain and answer questions about the situation, which required filling in many unstated assumptions and making inferences of many sorts based on them. The class had come down on the no side of all three of these cases, although they got progressively harder. So Rod, to show the class how difficult this decision might be, if they were really faced with a controversial program, managed to get a hookup over the phone lines with a natural language program called uh, Nikolai that had been developed over the last few years by the army at nearby Fort Leavenworth. Thanks to some connections that, uh, that Rod had, the class was able to gain uh, access to unclassified version of Nikolai and to interact with it for two or three hours. At the end of those hours, they then reconsidered the question of whether a computer might be able to think. Still, only one student was willing to consider Nikolai intelligent. Even that student reserved the right to switch sides if more information came in. About half the others were non-committal, and the rest were unwilling, under any circumstances, to call Nikolai intelligent. There was no doubt that Rod's demonstration had been effective, um, though in the class discussion had been one of the most li lively. Zamir told me all this um, on our drive into Lawrence from the Kansas City airport, and explained that the group had been so stimulated by this experience they were hoping to get reconnected to Nikolai over the phone lines and let me try it out during the the party. thought it sounded quite amusing, and since I have, I have tried it out and watched a lot of uh, natural language programs in my time, I thought I would uh, have an easy time coming up with good probes into the weaknesses of Nikolai. Besides, um, I thought somewhat chauvinistically, how good can a program be that is being developed by the army in an out-of-the-way place like Fort Leavenworth? To reveal its uh, mechanicalness ought to be a piece of cake for me. So I was looking forward to the challenge. When we first arrived at the party, everyone was drinking beer and munching on various chips and dips, talking excitedly about what had happened in the previous class meeting with Nikolai. There was some consternation, though, because it seemed that the connection to Nikolai was hard to reestablish. It had to go through a computer at the University of Kansas, thence to Fort Leavenworth, all of which meant that it was a slow, tenuous link. But after about 45 minutes of trying to set up the link, someone announced with a pleasure that Nikolai was responding. When the students were sitting at the terminal and typing in various simple questions and getting back simple answers, I watched over his shoulder and felt the itch 
to sit down and try to unmask Nikolai for what he really was. After a couple of minutes, the student relinquished the terminal and I got my chance. With a small group of people looking over my shoulder, I typed. Nikolai's answers were quite slow in coming over the phone lines, and the wait was made all the more suspenseful by the fact that they were transmuted only in full lines of text, so there were some pretty long delays between successive lines and response. That didn't seriously dampen any enthusiasm for trying to quickly poke holes in the program's facade of understanding. Hence, with here with the following somewhat abridged but accurate transcript of the conversation I had with Nikolai over the next hour or so, for convenience sake, what Nikolai typed is shown in capitals. My inner thoughts at the time, as best as I can reconstruct them, are in italics. And so here's the uh, the dialogue with, with the Nikolai. So um, I will try to talk like a robot from when he's speaking, and I'll try to talk lighter when Hofstadter's thinking in his mind and more normal when he's so robot. Uh, or Nikolai, I'll be like, yes, with... Um, Hofstetter's inner thoughts would be like, let's start that out. And then his normal conversation, probably like, eh, like twice as loud. Sorry for the lame intro, but let's see. What would you like to talk about? Let's start out easy. I can talk about anything. Yeah, yeah, tell it to Marines. Is there anything you specialize in? What does specialize mean? Please use a complete sentence. For a supposedly smart program, Nikolai doesn't seem to have a very big vocabulary. Specialize means to be good at. I wonder if Nikolai hikes or likes those quotation marks or if they will throw it for a loop. I understand. Is that so? When were you written? Last compilation, 42783, <clears throat> 19.247. Oh, look at that stupid rigid answer, complete with pointless quotation marks that, and that extra unexplained number at the end. I'm exposing Nikolai pretty well so far. What langu language is Nikolai written in? I think I'll see if it knows its own name and recognizes third-party references to itself. Nikolai is written mostly in ADA. Hmm, not bad. It handled both you and Nikolai when I talked about it. Those army programmers aren't so bad. What are feet? Choose an ambiguous word, so see what it comes up with. Feet are 12 inches. Wow. Weird. A person would never put it that way. They'd say a foot is a unit of length 12 inches long. Or something like that. Anyway, feet are primarily parts of the body, secondary units of length. Why didn't it even seem to recognize that ambiguity? Oh well, I guess that kind of dumbness is the kind of thing I wanted to expose. Score for me. What are ears? Why not try another ambiguous word after all? I'm dwell with the last one. Ears are auditory organs found on animals. This is really funny. Why were feet not thought of primary body parts then? This body part stuff seems to give me lots of points. I think I'll try it again. What are arms or what are arms that information is classified oh no that is too stupid for words <laughs> or it's somebody's idea of a joke i like to understand up without 17 claims let's toss some nonsense at nikolai and see what it does what do claims have to do with it oh come on nikolai do you mean you understand all the rest except for the claims but you are really dumb why are you so dumb I am a smart program. Well, that's kind of touching, actually. A little self-defense is appealing, in a way. You're pretty confident in yourself, aren't you? What does pretty confident mean? Oh, yeah, I should have known pretty. Adverb might be too colloquial. Did you understand up without my last sentence? I figure since earlier it didn't complain about my phrase, understand up. Let's see what it does with this one. 
Your sentence is nonsense. Oh, really? Well, then why wasn't the other one with the same phrase also considered nonsense? Do you enjoy nonsense? If you insist on talking nonsense, I have other tasks to perform. A strange response. Whoever insisted on talking nonsense? <clears throat> I was just asking a simple question. Oh, well, let me try another angle. What is your opinion of M.C. Escher? M.C. Escher, artist, 20th century. No, not again, another vacuous, um, or vacuous dictionary lookup. Can it do better than that, especially when I've asked a probing question about taste? Let's see how it handles a complaint. You did not answer my question. Which question did I not answer? Hey, this Nikolai is a pretty slick character. Not so different from Perry. I must say I am really impressed by the robustness of the program. I mean, we have covered a lot of ground so far and at least makes a pseudo-sensible answers most of the time. Not at all bad. Do you own any, do you own any money? I do not own anything. Fair enough. <laughs> Have you seen the latest issue of Scientific American? Uh-oh, once again, I don't know if I'm going to help or confuse it by putting those quotes. Let's see. I do not have any Scientific American. That sounds awkward. Very computerish. I don't know if it knows what I meant. Oh, well. You've been talking to me for quite a while. What is your name? Hmm. That was an unexpected remark by Nicholas. Should I answer it? Surely why not? My name is Doug. Do you have a last name? Inquisitive little devil, isn't it? Of course I do. Ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer. Let's see how it feels this one. Would you care to tell me what your last name is? Damn, I just totally ignored my tone of remark. And why is it being so polite suddenly? Only if you tell me yours. That ought to challenge it. I do not have a last name. I don't seem to be able to foil its defenses very easily. It always walks around me. This program sure anticipated a lot of ideas. I guess they must have debugged Nikolai for years. Watching typical dialogues with people who just come in off the street for a dumb program. Nikolai is pretty smart. Well, then I won't tell you mine. That's not being very friendly. You know, sometimes I have to admit the stupid program really does seem to understand something. I'm sorry. How do you like me to, uh, how would you like me to give you a, uh, would you like me to give you a last name? If you would like to do that, that would be fine with me. That was obviously a canned sentence, or at least the latter half must certainly be. Score one point for me, and yet I'm doing nearly as well as I'd hoped I would. By now, what's wrong? Your last name is Rimsy Korsakov. Thank you. Well, that's a strange kind of thing to say to somebody for. Just goes to show how originally the programmers make them the strangest thing, uh, make them say the strangest things. Don't mention it. I'll play along with the game for a second. What is your last name? My God, it remembered after all this while that as soon as it told me its last name, I was going to tell it mine. Well, I better make good on the promise. My last name is Hofstetter. Are you thirty-two, Douglas Hofstetter? Now, why in the midst of so much elegance does it suddenly act so crude, putting my name in quotes and including that silly extraneous index number? I can't for the life of me figure out why this program is so mixed in quality. One and the same. Try out a strange idiomatic phrase. Parsing error in previous input. Ah, folded again. All of a sudden, a whole lot of mechanicalness is showing through. How many letters are in your last name? I think I'll see whether I can figure out ambiguous, ambiguous words by the context. 14 plus a hyphen. Good. Now I'll let my letters switch meaning. What will it do? How many letters are there in any ordinary envelope? 18. Oh no, it didn't recognize my shift. It merely counted the number of letters in an ordinary envelope. But if that's the case, then how come and earlier it didn't count the letters in the phrase your last name, but instead retrieved the reference? There's something so inconsistent and even about this program. It just goes to show how far we 
have to go before mechanical intelligence bears any resemblance to human fluidity. Are you working on a new book? I wonder what will happen if I simply sidestep that question. Anyway, I'd like to probe its ability to deal with the humor. Tell me a joke. I want a cookie. <laughs> what kind of joke is that? Hey, it spelled cookie wrong. Is that the joke? Oh, it's a cookie with three O's. What is it? What's going on here? By the way, I'm sort of working on a new book. Care to hear about it? Can handle weird phrases like sort of and questions with the subject? No, but if you would give me a cookie, I would gladly pay you Tuesday. That sounds like a familiar line. If I heard it somewhere before, is that supposed to be the punchline of the joke? Tell me another one. How many computer programmers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Okay, I see. It's got binary jokes and riddles, or library jokes and riddles, and just fishes them out at random. <coughs> Four. Incorrect. That is a hardware problem. Okay, so it told its joke. But I bet it has no idea of what the terms and it means, such as programmer. Hey, left an R out of programmer. I guess whoever um, input the joke uh, misspelled the word, so let's see what happens when I ask about it. What is a computer programmer? Would you like me to explain the joke? Hey, damn, it turned to the tables. Does it think I know what a programmer or a programmer is? I don't like this slipperiness. Every time I try to get it to act really dumb, it somehow slips out of it. Strange, all right. Let me probe some more about it, understand the terms in the joke. How about a potentially off-color word? What does to screw mean? In what context? Aha, at least it knows and it's an ambiguous term. In bed. To screw in bed to mean to have sex. Okay, fine. It has some definitions stored according to its context. I guess the word must come all uh, come up all the time in conversations, but can it go any further than the definition? What is having sex all about? I can rend an excellent book on that subject. What a great stock answer. One point for the army programmers. Tell me, tell me. The book is called Godel Escher Bach. Huh? Say, wait a minute. This is too weird. I'm not sure this is really a program. There's too damn much cleverness in these weird responses. I can imagine bizarre mechanical devices coming with such uh, this much coherence, even if completely off the wall at times. I like to call it GEB myself. That is very nice, Doug. What else do you call GEB? All right, the jig's up. What's going on here? At this point, everybody started laughing. They all had been trying to keep keep from doing the whole time. At this point, they couldn't contain themselves. It was time to reveal to me what had been going on. They took me downstairs and showed me three of the students. Uh, Roy Lebin, Howard Darsh, and Garrick Stengel had been collectively playing Nikolai. There was, in reality, no such program. There hadn't been one. In retrospect, I am reminded of the famous French mathematician uh, Nicolas Bourbaki, a hypothetical person, actually an amalgam of over a dozen eminent mathematicians writing under a collective pen name. There had been a uh, similar demonstration for a class a few days earlier, and the class, like me, had been taken for a long time. In my case, Roy, Howard, and Garrick had worked very hard to give the impression of mechanisms by spewing back parsing error and other indications of rigidity, and also by sending what looked very much like canned phrases from time to time. That way, they could keep sophisticates like me believing that there was a program behind it. Only by that point was I beginning to wonder how sophisticated I really was. The marvelous thing about this game is that it was, in many ways, a Turing test in reverse. 
a group of human beings masquerading as a program trying to act mechanical enough that I would believe it really was one. Hugh Kenner has written a book called The Counterfeiters about the perennial human fascination with such compounded role flips. A typical example is um, Dialib's Ballet Coppelia, in which human dancers imitate life-size dolls, uh, stiffly imitating people. What is amusing is how Nikolai's occasional crudeness is just enough to keep me convinced it was mechanical. Its willingness to talk about itself, combined with its obvious limitations along those lines, it's called the relation of when it was last compiled, for instance, helped establish the illusion very strongly. In retrospect, I'm quite amazed at how much genuine intelligence I was willing to accept as somehow having been implanted in the program. I've been sucked into the notion that there really must be a serious natural language effort going on at Fort Leavenworth, and that there had been very large database developed, including all sorts of random information, a dictionary, a catalog containing names, miscellaneous people, some jokes, lots of canned phrases to use in difficult situations, some self-knowledge, crude ability to use keywords in, in a phrase when it can't parse um, it exactly, some heuristics for deciding when nonsense is being uh, foisted on it, some deductive capabilities, and on and on. In hindsight, it is clear that I was willing to accept a huge amount of fluidity as achievable in this day and act simply by putting together a large bag of isolated tricks, clutches, hacks, as they say. Roy Lieben, one of the three inside Nikolai's mind, wrote the following about the experience of being on the other side of the exchange. Nikolai was a split personality. Three of us, as well as many uh, kibitzers, argued about practically every response. Each of us had a strong preconceived notion about what or who Nikolai should be. For example, I felt that certain things, such as Douglas R. Hofstetter, should be in quotation marks and that feet should not be 12 inches, but 12.0. Howard had a tendency to, or a tendency for rather flip answers. It was he who suggested the classified response for the arms question, and somehow when he suggested it, we all knew it was right. Several times during our conversation, I felt quite amazed at how fluently Nikolai was being able to deal with these things. I was bring, bringing up, but each time I could postulate some not too sophisticated mechanical underpinning that would allow the particular thing to happen. As a strong skeptic of true fluidity in machines at the time, I kept on trying to come up with rationalizations for the fact that the program was doing so well. My conclusion was that it was very vast and quite sophisticated bag of tricks, no, no one of which was terribly complex. But after a while, it just became too much to believe. Furthermore, the mixture of crudity and subtlety became harder and harder to swallow as well. My strategy had been, in essence, to use spot checks all over the map to try to probe it with all sorts of ways rather than to get sucked into some topic of its own choice where it could steer the conversation. Daniel Dennett, in the paper on the depth of the Turing test called Can Machines Think, likens this technique to a strategy taught to American soldiers in World War II for telling German spies from genuine Yankees. The idea was that even if a young man spoke fluently or spoke absolutely fluent American-sounding English, you could trip him by asking him things that any boy growing up in the days would be expected to know, such as, what's the name of Mickey Mouse's girlfriend, or who won the World Series in 1937? This expands the domain of knowledge necessary from just language itself to the entire culture. An amazing thing is that just a few well-placed questions can unmask a fraud in a very brief time, or so it would seem. The problem is, what do you do if a person is extremely sharp when asked the Mickey Mouse 
response in some creative way, such as, ha, she ain't no girlfriend, she's a mouse. The point is, even when these trick probes that should ferret uh, out frauds very swiftly, there can be clever defenses and countermaneuvers, and you can't be sure of getting the bottom of things in a very brief time. Seems that a few days earlier, the class had collectively gone through something slimmer, similar to what I had just gone through. One difference, Howard Darsh, who had impersonated, um, if I may use that particular choice of words, Nikolai, in the first run, simply had acted himself without trying to feign mechanicalness in any way. When asked <clears throat> what color the sky was, he replied, in the daylight or at the night? And when told at night, he replied, dark purple with stars. He got increasingly poetic and creative in his response to the class, but no one grew suspicious that Nikolai was a fraud. At some point, Roy Ogburn simply had to stop the demonstration and type on the screen, Okay, Howard, you can come in now. Samir, who was not in cahoots with Rod and his team, was the only one who had some reluctance in accepting the performance as a genuine program. He kept silent until the end when he voiced a muted skepticism. Samir summarizes this dramatic demonstration by saying that his class was willing to view anything on a video terminal as mechanically produced, no matter how sophisticated, insightful, or poetic an utterance it might be, they might find it interesting and even surprising that they would find some way to discount those qualities. Why was in this case? How could they do this for so long, and why did I fall for the same kind of thing? Interacting with me, Nikolai had seemed to waver between crude mechanicalness and subtle flexibility. An oscillation I had been found... I had found more puzzling and somewhat disturbing, but I was still taken in for a very long time. It seems that, even armed with spot checks and quite a bit of linguistic sophistication and skepticism, unsupporting humans can have the wool pulled over their eyes for a good while. This was the humble pie I ate in this remarkable reverse Turing test, and I will always savor its taste and remember Nikolai with great fondness. So I, I kind of want to just finish the the section because there's only two more pages and, and sort of is concluding up on the concept of the Turing test and the the this particular um, thought process of of AI and then what would we identify as consciousness. Um, so bear with me. So as you said, Alan Turing in his article indicated that his imitation game test should take place through some sort of remote teletype link-up. One thing he did not indicate explicitly was at what grain size the messages would be transmitted. By that, I mean that he did not say whether the messages should be transmitted as intact holes or line-by-line, word-by-word, or keystroke-by-keystroke. Although I don't think it matters for the Turing test in any fundamental sense, I do think that which type of window you view another language using being through a definite bearing on how quickly you can make inferences about that being. Clearly, the most revealing of these possibilities is that of watching the other person operate in the keystroke level. On most multi-user computer systems, there are various ways for different users to communicate with each other, and these ways reflect different levels of urgency. The slowest one is generally the mail facility, through which you can send another user an arbitrarily long piece of text just like a letter in an envelope. When it arrives, it will be placed in the user's mailbox to be read at their leisure. A faster style of communicating is called uh, an Unix system, right, W-R-I-T-E. When this is invoked, a direct communications link is set up between you and the person you are trying to reach 
provided they are logged on. If they accept your link, then any full line typed by either of you will be instantly transmitted and printed on the other party's screen, where line full is signaled by your hitting the carriage return key. This is essentially what the Nikolai team used in communicating with me over the Kansas computer. Their regular typing rhythm uh, and any errors they might have made were completely concealed from me this way. Since all I saw was a sequence of completely polished lines with two spelling errors, cookie and programmer, which I was willing to excuse because Nikolai generated them in a joke context, the most revealing mode is what on Unix is called talk. In this mode, every single keystroke is revealed. You make an error, you are exposed. For some people, this is too much like living in a glass house, and they prefer the shielding afforded by right. For my part, I like living dangerously. Let the mistakes fly, or LFY. If computer-mediated conversions, computer-mediated conversations with my friend, I opt for the for talk. I have been amused to watch their talk styles and my own slowly evolve into relatively stable stairs. When we in Indiana University Computer Science Department first began using the talk facility, we were all somewhat paranoid about making errors and we would compulsively fix any error that we made. By this, I mean that we would backspace and retype the character. The effect on the screen of hitting the backspace key repeatedly is that you see most of the recently typed characters getting eaten up one by one right to left and if necessary the previous line and the one above it will get eaten backwards as well once you have erased the offending mistakes you simply resume typing forward this is how errors are corrected we all began in this finicky way feeling ashamed to let anything flawed remain in print so to speak visible to others eyes but gradually we overcame the sense of shame realizing that a typo sitting on a screen is not quite so deathless as one sitting on a page in a book Still, I found that some people just let things go more easily than others. For instance, by the length of the delay after typo is made, you can tell just how much its creator is hesitating and wondering whether to correct it. Hesitations of a fraction of a second are very noticeable and are part of a person's style. Even if a typo is left uncorrected, you can easily spot someone's uh, vacillations about whether or not to fix it. The counterparts of these things exist on many levels of such exchanges. There are levels of word choice. For instance, some people who don't mind having their typos on display will often backtrack and get rid of words they now repudiate. Sentence structure choice, idea choice, and higher. Hesitations and repairs or restarts are common. I find nothing so annoying as someone who has gotten an idea expressed just fine in one way and who then erases it all on the screen before your eyes and proceeds to uh, compose it anew as if one way of suggesting getting together for dinner at... Puglies at six were markedly superior to another. There are ways of exploiting uh, erasure in talk mode for the purposes of humor. Don Bird and I, when talking, would often make elaborate jokes, explore, uh, exploiting the medium in various ways. One of his I recall vividly when he hurled a nasty insult onto the screen and then I swiftly erased it, replacing it by a sweetly worded uh, compliment which remain for posterity to see at least uh, for another minute or so. One of our great discoveries was that some arrow keys allowed us to move all over the screen, thus to go many lines up in the conversation and edit early remarks by either of us. This allowed some fine jokes to be made. One hallmark of one's talk style is one's willingness to use abbreviations. 
This is correlated with one's willingness to abide typos, um, but is not by any means the same. I personally was the loosest of, of all the talkers. I knew, both in terms of leaving typos on the screen and in terms of peppering my sentence um, with all sorts of silly abbreviations. For instance, I will now retype this sentence as I would have in talk mode below. F ends... Um, I will now retype TS very sent as I WOD HV uh, would have in taco mode T-A-L-K-O mode below. Not bad, only two typos. The point is the communication rate is raised considerably, nearly that of the telephone. If you type well and are willing to be informal in all the, these ways, but many people are surprisingly uptight about their unpolished written prose being an exhibit for others to see, even if it's going to vanish in mere seconds. All of this I bring up not out of mere windbaggery, but because it bears strongly at the Turing test. Imagine the microscopic insights into personality that are afforded by watching someone, human or otherwise, typing away in talk mode. You can watch them dynamically uh, making and unmaking various word choices. You can see the inferences between one word and another causing typos. You can watch hesitations about whether or not to correct a typo. You can see when they are pausing to work out uh, thought before typing it, and so on. If you were just a people watcher, you can merely observe informally. If you are a psychologist or fanatic, you can measure reaction times in thousands of a second and make large collections and catalog them. Such collections have really been made, by the way, and make for some of the most fascinating reading on the human mind that I know of. See, for instance, Donald Norman's article, Categorization of Action Slips, or Victoria Franklin's book, Airs of linguistic performance, slips of the tongue, ear, pen, and hand. In any case, when you watch someone's real-time behavior, a real-life personality begins to appear on a screen very quickly. It is far different in feel from reading polished, post-edited linefuls, such as I received from Nikolai. It seemed to me that Alan Turing would have been most intrigued and pleased by the time-sensitive way of using his test, affording so many lovely windows into the subconscious mind, or pseudo-mind, um, of the being or pseudo-being under examination. As if it were not already clear enough, let me conclude by saying that I am an unabashed pu pusher of the validity of the Turing test as a way of oper operationally defining what it is it would be for a machine to genuinely think. There are, of course, middle grounds between real thinking and being totally empty inside. <laughs> small mammals, and in general smaller animals, seem to have less thought going on in their craniums than we have inside ours. Yet clearly animals have always done, and machines are now doing, things that seem to be best described as using Dennett's intentional stance. Donald Griffin, a, a conscious mammal, has written <laughs> thoughtfully on these topics. See, for instance, the book uh, The Question of Animal Awareness. John McCarthy has pointed out that even electric blanket manufacturers use the phrase as, I think it's too hot, to explain how their products work. We live in an era when mental terms are being both validly extended and invalidly abused, and when we're going to need time to think about these matters, especially in the face of the onslaught of ad, uh, advertising hype and journalese. Various modifications of the Turing test idea will undoubtedly be suggested as computer mastery of human language increases, simply to serve as benchmarks for what programs can and cannot do. This is a fine idea, but does not diminish the work of the original Turing test, whose primary purpose was to convert a philosophical question into an operational question, an aim that I believe it filled admirably.
so in sort of like, I guess like a conclusion or, or what to take from all this is it's like, I, I feel like the collective body of, of all of this sort of from the dialogue to the fake dialogue to the just observing and analyzing, you know, Turing's program, you know, and, and how many personalities humans have and like what we, like the, the, you know, really kind of defining what consciousness is, you know, and, and where the borderline is there, there's, it's a lot to think about. I feel like I have to do some, some additional thinking and I'll probably, you know, do some journaling on this, but I, I, I don't know something about this when I, when I read it was like, this is something that other people should just, they should read. I feel like Hofstetter in general, I, I've kind of like going through a lot of his, his works and just kind of, you know, I don't know what made me just decide to go to this today, but it was, it was actually kind of random, but you know, I'm glad I did, but I always try to pass along stuff that I think, you know, will at least trigger some stuff, because, I mean, this was written in, what, like, 80-something? I actually don't know what year. I'll find out real quick. Um, but, yeah, this is from, you know, his book, uh, Meta Magical Themas, uh, Questions for the Essence of Mind and Pattern. Um, and he wrote it in... Let's see. I think the original copy... Nineteen eighty-five. Okay, so you know, look at how much uh, technology and computers. You know, we didn't have, we didn't, we were, we weren't even having cell phones really then. I think some of the first portable phones were coming out or whatever. That's why you were I was born. Shit. And uh, you know, now look at it. It's like we, we, you know, people literally their entire job is machine learning and programming. Um, you know. They're about to release that Neuralink, which, you know, we're already, like, cyborgs with our our cell phones just on the outside. But with Neuralink, it'll actually be in us, like, and, you know, I did that whole podcast thing on um, uh, the six stages of, of merging into the singularity. It's like, uh, we're, it's like an inevitable thing. And, you know, uh, Kurt Soul is just like, you know... At some point, there we do merge with machine, and so, you know, where is that line between what is considered mechanical and what makes something conscious? You know, so worth worth thinking about. I'm kind of curious if I could, if anybody wants to like email me or send me any information, that would be fantastic. But yeah, like this is some cool stuff.